for. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition so you will not grow weary and lose heart. Guilt is a very interesting, layered, multifaceted kind of emotion. And I spent a lot of time thinking about guilt as I prepared for this sermon. And I thought, is guilt truly an emotion? The definition of an emotion is a natural, instinctive state of mind deriving from one's circumstances, mood, or relationships with others. So I think, yes, a very good way that we can classify guilt is that it, it, it is an emotion to us. Because it comes naturally, doesn't it? Isn't it almost instinctually, instinctual very often that we feel guilt? Most people do not go out and seek a feeling of guiltiness. Right? I have met some people that do before, and probably we all have, those people who just like to kind of drown in their sorrows, that always want to feel bad and always want to feel negative. Uh, at least in my family, we call those people Debbie Downers. Is that an expression you guys know as well? Okay. So we've all met some Debbie Downers before. But, but I think for the vast majority of people that I have ever met, they do not like feeling guilty. And usually when we do feel guilty, it is brought about because of either our circumstances, uh, our, our mood, or our relationships that we have with other people. There are just way too many things in this world that can leave us feeling heavy, feeling condemned, feeling worthless, and feeling unworthy. Right? These are all unpleasant emotions. This is not the way that, that instinctually we want to feel. When we feel guilty all the time, it can eat away at us. Feeling guilty all the time can make you question your self-worth. Feeling guilty, to reference back to last week, can also cause you to lose hope. The vast majority of people sitting in this room do not like feeling guilty. It is a yucky feeling. You avoid it. And because of that, you also tend to want to avoid people or situations that would also make you feel guilty. Right? No one has ever said, I am so glad that Aunt Mary is coming to Christmas dinner this year because Aunt Mary, every time I see her, she always points out all the things in my life I'm doing wrong. Right? If I got a promotion at work, her kid got a better one. Right? If I just got married, maybe, maybe her son just had his first kid. You know, if I tell her, if I'm in college and I say I have a 3.0 GPA, well, she asks me, why wasn't it 
We all have people like that in our lives. And I should say, I do have an Aunt Mary, like an actual Aunt Mary. Uh, and Mary, if you're watching this for some reason and it ever gets in front of you, please know, I just, your name is what popped into my head. You're a very nice lady. The fact that we have not seen each other in several years, it has nothing to do with you being a Debbie Downer. But the point is, we do avoid people like that, don't we? Isn't it easy for us to say, well, you know what, maybe instead of going to that Christmas dinner knowing Aunt Mary's going to be there, I'm just going to stay home and play video games this year. Because no one's going to be there to make me feel guilty if I just stay at home on my couch. We train ourselves, almost without having to try, we train ourselves to avoid these negative Nellies. That's another one, Debbie Downers and negative Nellies. Okay? We, we block them out of our lives to the best of our ability. We try to just stay away from them. And I think that our society that we're living in today is filled with people who see Christianity and an organized religion as a whole as that Aunt Mary of the family gathering. Is it, they, they seem to think that, that, that church, that Christians exist for no other reason than to make sure that when you leave their presence, you're knocked down a few pegs. Right? You don't leave their presence higher than you came in, you're going to come out lower. Too many people see the church just as a place where a spotlight is going to be shined upon their failures. Where we're going to, to use this book, again, as a tool to, not to draw them closer to the truth, but to beat them down into submission. And don't gasp, don't think that I've gone soft on you all of a sudden. This is not a message saying that the church should just stop labeling sin so that everyone can feel good about themselves. It's not a message saying that, that we should not teach Christians how we should live out in the world or how we should interact with other people. But, but here's what I, I can tell you, is if you have never felt that way about the church yourself, I can just about promise you that there is someone that you know, probably someone who you have prayed for, someone who you love, someone who you would love to have the opportunity to share the gospel with that wants no part of what you are preaching. Because for them to acknowledge that there is a God and to acknowledge that there is sin and to acknowledge that that sin separates them from God, it stirs fear in them. It's the fear that all of the choices that they have made throughout their life that all the decisions that they have made, it's this fear that if they come around church and they come around church people, that they are going to be made to feel guilty. And again, naturally, we don't like that feeling. So, so, so people would rather avoid that encounter than feel that way. I know, honestly, that's my story. Okay, deep down, if I go back and reflect, I know the reason that I avoided church and I avoided Christians for so many years. The reason why it was easier for me on a Sunday morning to, to find something else to do with my time other than go to a church is, is I had no desire to get up early in the morning and go to a place where I was just going to be beaten over the head with a Bible, convicted, look, look at the man standing in the pulpit knowing that he too sinned, that he too fell short, and listened to him convict me like he had no skeletons in his closet, or at least that's what I would tell myself. But truthfully, it was my guilt. It was my knowledge that I was a broken mess, and my perception that I had of, uh, that the church only existed to judge me. It kept me sitting on the sidelines for, for 15 years. 
And fast forward to today. Um, I've told you before, Linda and I get the opportunity to teach the uh, Kids for Christ class that we have here with our elementary kids on Thursday night. And uh, not this week, but the week before, uh, we planned a lesson around one of my favorite scriptures. It's one of my favorite because of what it means to me personally, and then also what it should mean to us collectively as, as Christ's church, if, if we actually adopted it and acted the way that we're told to. Uh, it's 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. It says this, it says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You see, so what we did in our lesson is we took like six naughty things. Six things that the kids know they should not do, that, that, are, that are sins. And we put them on a piece of paper, it looks like this you see behind me. Lying, stealing, cheating, gossiping, greedy, and bullying. And we asked the kids, we want you to take this paper and we want you to cut out these six sins, these six naughty things. And then I want you to glue them back on a piece of construction paper. And on the top of the paper, I want you to put the sin that's the worst. I want you to put the sin that's going to keep you separated from God, the fastest on the top, and the one that maybe, eh, it's not so bad. Maybe that one can just get overlooked. Put that one on the bottom. And they gave us all different answers, of course, right? To some kids, bullying was the worst thing that you could ever do. Some kids, well, certainly not stealing. I think most of them understood that yeah, everyone lies a little bit, so lying probably got towards the bottom of most of their lists. It's a pretty elementary lesson, and I know that you are not elementary students. I know that you have all heard before that all have sinned and that all fall short of the glory of God. That when we look at this, this list of sins, it does not matter which one puts, you put on the top, that, that any sin is what separates you from your Creator and keeps you out of heaven. I hope that we can all agree on that. The kids heard that lesson that night. You've heard that lesson many, many times before. I believe that generations of Christians who have come before us have also heard this lesson before. But if we've been being told this for generation and generation, the, the question that remains is why do so many sinners avoid church like it is the plague and are not drawn to it like it's the medicine. Right? If it's agreed upon belief by the vast majority of us sitting in this room that, that all Christians are sinners, and no matter what our sin is, it is our sin nature that keeps us separated from the Father, that that is what disqualifies us for li from living in eternity with Him, why are Christians more often seen as, as Bible-thumping hypocrites who spew judgment rather than being seen or perceived as messengers of God's amazing grace? See, we as Christians, we have come to acknowledge the fact that we need a high priest. We, we need someone who can offer reparation for our sins. We've acknowledged that. So why do so many Christians, by their action and by their deed, then, then make it seem like the fact that they know who that high priest is, that it's some big secret that they want to keep to themselves? I know I promised you Hebrews 5 today, but in reality, it's the last three verses of chapter 4 that we will begin at, because the way the chapters are broken down here in Hebrews, it's very obvious that these last three verses of chapter 4 act as an introduction. 
into what we're going to be discussing in, in chapter 5. So we're first going to look at Hebrews 4, 14 today. And this is what it says. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. And I know this idea of having a high priest. Right? Some sort of holy man that, that in some way is closer to God than we are. That, that's not something we're used to, that concept. Right? It's not part of our Sunday morning tradition here. But, but to the first century Jewish converts, we have to remember that for their entire existence, and for their parents' entire existence, and their grandparents and their great-grandparents, and keep going back, that the high priest was this man who sat on top of the priestly order. It, it was a tradition that had been being observed for thousands of years. The tradition goes all the way back to, again, the book of Exodus, in Exodus 29, where Aaron, the brother of Moses, was first appointed to the position. And this position of high priest, it was something that was to be appointed to for life. It was something that was to be passed down through the family line. And like most things that God intends, men had a way of getting their claws into it and messing it up a little bit. But that's a sermon for a different day. There were always many priests that were set aside from the Levites. But there was only ever one high priest at any given moment. And the high priest had a job that was like no other. It was the high priest alone who would go before God and who would make atonement, make offering for the people. He, he was the only man on earth at any given moment that could shoulder the responsibility to go beyond the curtain, to go beyond the, the, the veil that was there and go into the Holy of Holies, that could stand in, in the presence of God before the ark and make sacrifices for the sins of the people. And before he could go, and before he could actually make a sacrifice for the people, he had to consecrate himself, because he was just a man. He had to give offering to make himself clean, but before he could stand before God. And again, this was not just some silly ritual. You see, because before he would go beyond the curtain and go beyond the veil, he would tie a rope around his waist. Right? It wasn't a fashion statement. He wasn't trying to make sure that his hourglass figure looked nice. This was because if, if, if he did this improperly, if, if he did not consecrate himself properly, he would fall dead in the presence of the Lord. And the only way that his friends and family could retrieve his body would be to tug on that rope until he came back to the other side of the curtain. And year after year, and generation after generation, this tradition, it continued the people who read this letter originally, they, they completely understood the what, they understood the why, they understood the how. But now the author is telling them something new about this new high priest that, that they have been given. And this same high priest that serves in, in perpetuity, that, that is still our high priest today. Anyone for the rest of time who reads this letter of Hebrews, who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, now reads this and knows that they are reading about their high priest. And he tells us three things about this great high priest in, in, in just this one verse. The first thing it tells us is he is indeed great. Right? Not only that he is a high priest, but he is a great one. He is marked as being superior to, to all the other lesser priests who have come before him. He's, he's greater not only in character, but this high priest that we have now, he, he is greater in his work. 
The second thing it tells us is that this high priest, that he passed through the heavens. We're told that our, our high priest that we have now, that he penetrates to the very presence of God. And he does so without any hindrance. Right? There's no obstacles, there's no veil that he must cross. There, there's no rope tied around this high priest's waist any longer. And then most importantly, we're told that the name of this new great high priest that we have is Jesus. And that his title is the Son of God. Jesus, the name has been used in this letter previously, but, but this is the first time that we see it now used, accompanied with that title, the Son of God, finally blending together the dual reality nature of who Jesus is. That this great high priest that we have, that, that he, he is indeed man, that he walked upon this earth, that he was born of a woman, but in the same breath that he is also God, that he is also divine. Verse 14 tells us what we need to know about our high priest. But if you've been paying attention through Hebrews, there's also something very familiar that you should see there as well, and, and that is that there's a warning in that verse. It seems like we can never get too far into this letter without finding a warning. And the warning, again, that we have heard before is, hold fast to your confession. Another way that that could be interpreted is to cling to your confession. Again, just, just that reminder to not let anyone or let anything pry your confession that Jesus Christ is your Lord to pry it out of your fingers. Think, think of hanging above a chasm. That the only thing that is preventing you from plummeting to your death is the grip that you keep on your confession that Jesus Christ is indeed your Lord. When we continue in verses 15 and 16, it says... For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's that line, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but without sin. Sometimes you can be cruising along pretty good through a piece of scripture, and then you get to a verse that's kind of like a speed bump. And this speed bump is a little bit too big that we just can't keep flying past it. This verse, I think, can be really hard for a lot of us. It's really hard for me. You see, what we read right there, it seems to not only imply, but actually confirm that Jesus was tempted in his life more than just those couple times that we know about in the wilderness. See, it says he was tempted in every way. And there's something about this that makes Jesus' experience on earth as he walked this earth, it makes it more relatable. It puts it into the same category as we know our lives are when it comes to the temptations that we face. At surface level, at first, it's very encouraging for me to know that my Savior knows the temptations of this world. It really makes me feel understood. But then the author has to go and tag on that line, yet without sin. You see, because for us, for you, and for myself, we will be tempted. And often when we are tempted, we've all fallen short. We, we all have sinned. But Jesus Christ, who walked this earth as a man, was tempted in the same ways that I was, but where I failed, he did not sin. 
This means for some of us, too, we have to come to grips with the truth that temptation in itself is not sin. You have to agree with this. Right? It's the only way that we can reconcile this truth that the Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. Now, I know for most of us as well, it's also easier for us to have mercy on someone or to show someone understanding for the things that we have personally been tempted by. It's a lot harder to show mercy and understanding to someone who has maybe failed in a way that we just can't comprehend or we have no idea why they would find that tempting. I think of my daughters. If they disobey me, if they do something wrong, it upsets me. And there's consequence when they do something wrong. But when they do something and fall short that I can empathize with, I deal with them much more gently. So, let, let's just say they get caught eating a piece of candy before dinner. It's wrong, they disobey, they know they should not do that, and there should be consequence. But it's very easy for me in my heart to empathize with them, because there's been plenty of times where Linda may say, Dan, can you go grab the olive oil from the pantry? And when I open up the pantry door, lo and behold, right in front of me is a bowl full of Reese cups. And I have been tempted to reach my hand in there and grab a Reese cup myself. Again, what they did was still wrong but I can empathize with them. Other times, though, let's say as I'm reaching into a toilet to remove gym socks that were flushed down a toilet, they disobeyed, they did wrong. But as I'm looking at them, I'm saying, child, like, I've never once in my life walked past a toilet and thought to myself, I wonder how many gym socks I can flush down there. <laughs> it's very hard for me to empathize with you and to understand why your brain thought that this was going to be a good idea. We know that Jesus was tempted with food when he was hungry. We know that he was tempted with the offer of power if he would sin. And again, these are two things that I know I can relate to. But what we read tells us that Jesus was tempted in more ways than this. It says, in every aspect he has been tempted as we are. So that he understands... And so that we can have confidence. And this gets really tricky. This gets really difficult because we don't ever want to narrate parts of Christ's life that we don't have any idea about. But we have to admit that his entire life on earth is not recorded for us in scripture. So it does allow us to ponder at least a little bit. It allows us to at least think like... I know the temptations that I am susceptible to. You know the temptations that you are susceptible to. You don't have to all stand up and yell them out right now. We can just assume. Maybe, for somebody in here or someone watching online, maybe a stumbling block for you is substance abuse. And you think to yourself, could Christ really understand? This one actually is kind of scripture, so this one is easy. But, but I can tell you, if you're at a party... I don't know if anybody ever has been at a party before where the drinks ran out too early. But if you're at a party and the drinking runs out too early, you were at least tempted to abuse alcohol. But the scripture tells us that Jesus did not sin. Right? Maybe for somebody here today, you deal with the temptation of lust. And it seems like around every corner... It's waiting for you. It seems like every time you turn on your TV or every time you open the internet browser, it's waiting for you. Okay, well, I, I can tell you, 
If you've read the Old Testament, you've read the New Testament, if you've looked at the way that men and women have interacted with each other from the entire span of humanity, it's not that far-fetched for us to think that a man that lived on the earth for over 30 years at some point would have been tempted to fall prey. But he did not sin. Maybe your stumbling block is lying. I think for a lot of us, this is a hard one. That you know that often you are tempted and it is difficult to not tell the truth. Right? The little white lie seems easier because you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or you don't want to offend anyone. Do you not think that there would have been countless opportunities for Jesus while he was here on earth to be tempted to do the same exact thing? But we're told he did not sin. Maybe you are constantly being tempted to be quick to anger. Maybe you are tempted to seek revenge. Again, I've said it before, it's safe to assume that Jesus was never cut off in traffic on 75 at rush hour. But again, it is scripture that we know that people hurled insults at him. We know that people threatened the lives of his friends. We know that he himself was assaulted. But he did not sin. And finally, that takes us to chapter 5. We're going to look at the first five verses of Hebrews 5 today. And what it says is, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. We're reminded again that, that up until this point in human history, every high priest has been but a man. And that every high priest up until this point was a man who had sinned. Every high priest up until this point, again, would have to make an offering for themselves. Would have to cleanse themselves before they were able to stand before God and make one for the people. And it says the reason for this was so that the high priest would be able to deal gently with the people. You see, he was weak as they were. The high priest up until this point was also a wretched sinner that was in need of saving. So Jesus Christ had to become man. He had to walk this earth. He had to be tempted. So that we would have a high priest who was able to sympathize with all of our weakness. And maybe that does make you a little bit uncomfortable. Because when I think about the layers of it, it certainly makes me uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable to think of God's son being tempted with the same things that I am tempted with. But in the same breath, it's also an amazing hope to remember that I have a Savior who can, who can sympathize with my weakness. This is why this matters. Okay? This is a message you've heard from me before. But th this is something that we have to get right if we are ever going to be a place where broken people who are full of guilt already, before they even get here, 
if we are to be a place where those people are going to find restoration. Because what you'll notice in the scriptures that we just read, there's something that is noticeably absent from all of this. And that is any mention of a weakness, a temptation, or a sin that is beyond the scope of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And I know for a lot of you, even though your mouths won't open and say it, I know for a lot of you, your heart screams amen when you hear that. But do we mean it? Even the temptations that you or I may not understand. The hurt and the broken people in our communities are falling prey to these things every single day. And our great high priest is able to make supplication for all of it. And again, before you say amen, think of the ramifications of what that truly means. We have to ask ourselves the question of how far are we willing to take this? Right? Will you still, will your heart still say amen even when you start to get a little bit uncomfortable? Right? Where will your breaking point be as we try to live this out? When a heroin addict walks in our doors, is your first reaction going to be to gasp? Say, I just can't imagine ever being in such a dark place as that. I, I, just, I can't even put myself in the same presence as a person who has that type of temptation. Or are you going to deal gently with that young man or woman? Are you going to try to show them the same love as your great high priest showed you? When a broken man comes to this congregation who has been losing his battle with lust, who's lost his family because of his pornography addiction, are you going to turn your back? Or is your first reaction going to be that that is disgusting and gross and that is a horrible sinner and it's not the person who I want to be around? Or are you going to sympathize with him just like your great high priest did for you? How about this one? How about a homosexual couple comes into our presence one day? Is our first reaction going to be to search out some holy water so we can throw it at them? Right? Are, are we going to get our, our, our Romans 1 out and are we going to beat them with it until they decide to leave? Or are you going to remember that you are not the high priest that Jesus Christ is? Again, 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I am not asking you to ignore sin. I hope you know me well enough that I will never water down the truth of God's word just to avoid hurting someone's feelings. But I have to remember that in my heart that I truly believe that the reason Jesus Christ came to this earth was to save sinners. I will always keep it in the forefront of my brain that, that of the sinners that he came to save, I am the foremost. That I will use my life as a testimony because I have already received mercy from my great high priest. And I will always remember that, that I was forgiven for one reason, so that Jesus Christ might display himself to those sinners 
who would come to him and seek eternal life. Again, I've said it many times before, and as we close today, I'm going to say it again. Stop being surprised by the sins of this world. Stop gasping. Stop, stop clutching our pearls. We have to stop being so surprised. We have to start being an example to those who desperately need the great, eternal, perfect high priest that is Jesus Christ. Pray with me.